Welcome to CMO Confidential, the podcast that takes you inside the drama, decisions, and choices that go with being the head of marketing. Hosted by five-time CMO, Mike Linton. Welcome marketers, advertisers, and those who love them to Chief Marketing Officer Confidential. CMO Confidential is a program that takes you inside the drama, the decisions, and the politics that go with being the head of marketing at any company in what is one of the most scrutinized jobs in the executive suite. I'm Mike Linton, the former Chief Marketing Officer of Best Buy, eBay, Farmers Insurance, and Ancestry.com, here with my guest, Kim Whitler. Today's topic, a top B-School professor shares research on brands taking a stand on social and political issues, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Background on Kim. She started her career at Procter & Gamble and went on to be a GM of Aurora Foods and CMO of David's Bridal. She then shifted to the academic world and is now a professor at Darden at Virginia. She has spent much of her time researching and studying marketing um, and brings, in my mind, a super unique perspective to the show as both an operator and a student. I also, whenever I talk about Virginia, I have to say, go who's, just because <laughs> I just like to say that. This is Kim's second time on the show. Previously, she shared her research and observations on CMO tenure and what to do about it. Welcome back, Kim. Thank you. I'm so glad to be with you. I love your podcast, so it's it's an honor to be here with you today. Oh, my gosh. We love having you on the show. If, if you're going to keep saying things like that, we're going to have you back. Um, so first question, Kim, before we get into this in depth, Let's let's define for our listeners what socio-political activism means and why companies are engaging in it at all. Like like let's just put that on the table and then we can we can we can tear it apart from there. Yeah, you know, before I even dive into this, I have to say that I know that this is a very heated topic. Um, I've worked with a number of different executive audiences and it's a tough one to engage in. So I'm going to do my best today to kind of bring a database perspective as much as possible, what we're learning in the academic community. We're in the early days. Academic research takes time to get published, but I'm going to do my best to kind of try to bring, a, if you were, will, a bit of an academic perspective on this, as well as a bit of a strategic perspective. I think right. that would be great. That would be great. Um, so in terms of corporate socio-political activism, okay, that is a mouthful. It's essentially when a firm demonstrates, either through statements or actions, oftentimes through statements today, um, a degree of support for or opposition to one side of a partisan socio-political issue. So think of this as Koch's engagement um, in the voting reform, uh, the Georgia voting reform bill, you have two sides to the issue. They stand up and take a stand on one side or the other side. That's typically an example. So why are companies doing it? They're getting a lot of pressure. And that pressure can come from external groups, um, outside of the firm, activists. It can also come today from internal groups. Um, if you go back, gosh, in the 2000s, Google received a lot of pressure uh, from employees to drop a $10 billion Pentagon bid yeah. because the employee thought that that was um, an evil thing to do. And in fact, Google dropped it. So that was a case where the company dropped uh, participation in a bid for the Pentagon because of employee 
if you will, employee activism. So the pressure can come from inside the company or outside the company. And with social media and everything now, that kind of pressure, you know, and, and you have a million communication channels internally, externally, like Slack and every, everything else that can go on. You also have anytime you do anything, whether it's, you know, the recent recent issues with Bud Light or Nike, um, you can you can irritate one side of of the uh, of of your audience. And and so, I, I, look, I, you are a research titan. I mean, when whenever we talk, you have done research on just about everything, including uh, job specs and, and all kinds of things. Tell us how uh, how to think about the research on this, like uh, particularly the academic research in this area of 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 socio-political, I'm gonna say this over and over until I get it right, socio-political issues. Um and, and what is it, what is it kind of telling us? And then how how do CMOs and and companies manage this? And, and then we'll talk about, you know, some examples and 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 how to think about it if you're in the seat when this is coming to you. So so here, here's what we'll do. We'll use CSA, corporate socio-political activism. So CSA is a lot easier to say. Um, so, you know, look, I was a practitioner for tw almost 20 years before I got my PhD and became an academic. And so I've seen both sides ended up in the C-suite and then now uh, on the academic side. The academic research is far better than the stuff that you're seeing on the managerial side. The reason for that, one, the academic research uh looks at and controls for things like endogeneity so you get a better sense of causality the managerial research is largely descriptive and give me so, an example of what so, you so just that's said. one of the issues the give me an example of what you just I'm said sorry? You, you you just used the word about the academic research being and I, I think we just had a little sound glitch there but uh that it it, it is much broader and deeper can, can you can you can you dig down on that and give us an example of it so a lot of a lot of the when I say descriptive, it's like forty two percent of consumers believe. Let me actually let me give you an example. So there's a study that was done. Porter Novelli did this, and they asked respondents uh, to a survey whether companies should take a stand on fourteen different issues, from gun control to privacy to education to immigration to fake news. You name it. They said should companies take a stand. Not surprising, consumers said, sure, 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 sure. Yes, 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 yes. That research doesn't look at the consequence of taking a stand. It doesn't look at trade-offs. It's just simply, you know, should companies stand up? And so a lot of the, what we read in the news is a lot of this managerial research, which is deeply misleading. Because if we asked a different question, such as a conjoint or trade-off type question, such as the following, should, if you ask, uh, I'm gonna use Coke as, a, as an example again, um, should Coke take a stand on immigration? Yes. On fake news? Yes. On voting rights? Yes. On consumers may say yes, because there's no cost. If you ask then, you know, should Coke take a stand in the, in the real world, there's actually a trade-off. Do you want the C-suite focusing on fake news or do you want them focusing on the products and services that they sell? So if you ask a question like, would you prefer Coke to spend their time advocating for fake news or advocating for 
or, or working towards products that are better for children, the answer would very well be different. If you I, and I think this is really a, a point I, I want to get into, which is, yes, a lot of the research is just single question research. And the conjoint that, that Kim is talking about, just for our listeners, is where the, the decisions are interrelated. And you can see the impact on what happens in, in various choices that you make. And I, I think this is a, a key point here, which is a lot of the decisions are coming to people as yes or no versus an and decision, which is you do this and the following 10 things were are going to happen, which which you know we're seeing we're seeing play out with Budweiser, with Disney, and where everybody else where the decision is there's there's cascading decisions that follow it, a lot of them not in your control. And and so I I, I want to keep talking about the research, but I wanted everybody to get a feel for for what we met here when we're talking about the conjoint analysis and the depth of research versus a single issue question. It, it, well, there's another thing about academic research is that it goes through a rigorous review process. So those reviewers are making sure that the methods are appropriate, the methods are um, kind of the highest quality, et cetera. So typically academic research is stronger. And so to your point, Mike, the academic research actually looks at the consequences of taking a stand. There's now multiple studies that look at as three different DVs, the effect on, on employees, the effect on, on shareholders and the effect on consumers. And all of these studies across different domains and across different researchers, it's not the same researchers, literally say the same thing, that there is a negative asymmetric effect that when companies take a stand on a divisive issue, the people that agree with the position, whether they're shareholders, employees, or consumers, are neutral to slightly positive. The, the, the people who disagree are significantly negatively affected. Consumers are much, on, on the negative side, are much less likely to buy. Um, employees are, are, are much more demotivated and shareholders are much less interested in purchasing the stock or supporting the stock. So you get this negative asymmetric effect and that's what's worrisome in the academic data. That when you take a stand, the people who don't like it are really negative. The people who like it, you did what they expected you to and so they're neutral to slightly positive. Lot, the losses loom larger on this. Well, I, I, and uh, this says the Delta, uh, the Delta is way more for pissing people off than just confirming that you're with them. Um, so, so I guess, I guess I'm, I'm thinking about how, how do you manage this if you're sitting in the executive suite or the CMO job where this shows up to you, uh, you can give us examples or, or anything else. Cause, cause when you get, when you get asked to do this or you get the pressure, fighting the pressure can be really hard. Um, how do you, I, I, you know, and I think this research is going to be really helpful because it's going to say your job, your first job is your fiduciary responsibility to your, to your company. Your second job is, is, is to, uh, you know, do the right thing for the long term of the business. How, how, how are people thinking about this? Like, what advice do you have for people in the middle of all this crossfire of pressure? Well, so let me say this about the research. Like I said, we're at the early stages of this. It takes research three, four, five, 
my research, I'm working on one project, I'm going on 12th year, right? So the academic cycle takes a long time. That's like five CMO tenures, Kim. I know, I know. I I like, I don't want to do anything for nine months, let alone 12 years, but here I am. Uh, so, So what we will find right now, the first stage of academic research is we find this blunt result. This is bad. Okay, so engaging in things that are divisive hurts the business. Okay, what we will start finding is though what moderates it, what helps, what hurts, when does it help, when does it hurt, and that'll be the next stage where we start getting better clarity around when CSA helps support firm growth and brand health, and when it doesn't. Okay, so let me just be clear about that. So, so let me let me actually talk about what I see are the are the problems that contribute to bad decision making. So I've now, um, I've written a case on Coke, I've written a case on Disney, um, and I've I've now led 12 different groups through, through case discussions. The last one I led was literally about a half of a day. And it's fascinating what I've learned by working with executives and watching how they engage in these decisions. Because I start off, I give them the facts of Disney and I say, you're the CEO, what do you do and why? You have one of four positions that you can take a stand on. You're for the liberal position, you're for the conservative position, no comment or what I call thread the needle. You 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 make a statement, but you don't pick a side. You, you, yeah, you, say, you say something. Yeah. Well, you well, no, you, you actually talk about how you have compassion for both sides, right. you know, and then you call on your political leaders to bring people together, like the Disney family. We love all families. Let's let's find a way to make sure that all families um, can bring their kids to school and so forth. Uh, so you try to make a statement that kind of is, if you will, a neutral statement. And so there's a few things that I've observed that get in the way of what I would consider um, uh, effective decision-making. One, a big one, is conflating self-interest with company interest. And I call this the new agency problem. And here's what I mean. This is a little complicated, I'll try to be simple. Why do boards exist? Boards are actually hired to represent the best interests of the shareholders and by law, they have fiduciary responsibility. They are there to make sure that managers operate in the best interest of the firm and not themselves. When I, as a CEO, and Iger said this before he became this, uh, you know, he's now the CEO of Disney. He literally said, you have to do the right thing, even if it hurts the firm. And so the conversation I have with people is I say, what is the definition of right when you are the CEO? It's not conforming to your personal value system. It literally is doing the right thing for the firm in terms of stewarding the business and steward and stewarding the brand. And so if adhering to your own personal belief system hurts the firm, you're actually behaving in a way that's inconsistent with fiduciary responsibility. You're hired to do the right thing for the firm. So that's one. So that's one thing about bad decision-making. My guess is you have a couple more, more things that are, are influence or decision influencing, which is, yeah. yeah. So let's, let's keep going down this list. The second one is CMOs failing to champion the consumer and instead they advocate for themselves. All right. So this is related to that first problem but CMOs failing to understand the breadth of their consumers 
and instead say, again, I've got to do the right thing for my belief system. I'll give you a quick example. I know somebody who worked at, at, at a very senior level at Coke and Mutar, supposedly Mutar Kent, um, knew that his senior staff was all of one mind. And so he would bring in people outside of the senior staff to talk about how the bottlers would see a decision. So the problem is you had this in-group bias, all of a similar political persuasion, and the CMO was failing to represent all of the consumers and the breadth of consumers. The CMO is supposed to be the champion of the consumer, not themselves. The third, the third issue that I see is enabling one political view to dominate discussion and decision-making. So there's now quite a bit of data. Cato Institute has some data that shows that the more conservative you are, the more you self-censor. And so I've seen this in my sessions, 12 sessions, and not one individual has ever advocated, has ever advocated for the consumer view, not one. Well, this is a problem if you're in the C-suite trying to make a decision and you have consumers that are conservative, and you want to target conservatives, you need to make sure that their voice is represented in the decision-making process. Otherwise, you're only considering one side of the equation and that's problematic. Of course, if you happen to work at a company where all the senior suite is conservative, you could have the same issue if you the don't bring in yeah. the liberal point. Yeah, yeah. You, you can easily see how this just can, can flip either way. And and how hard it is, especially given kind of the the way comms comes up from both the employee base and over social media into the company, how hard it is. I would actually opine that a lot of times you don't want the CMO, you want the CMO bringing the consumer to the table, but not making a lot of these calls. These should be company calls versus CMO calls because they actually are, are, are it's the company that is making a move uh on on uh, what you call it, the I'm just going to go socio political statements. It's it's not really just the marketing; it affects the whole company. So so my advice is, if you're in the middle of this as a CMO, you are putting it on the table for a bigger group, and no matter what, you are always finding the devil's advocate view of almost anything you want to say to at least debate it before you have to take that kind of choice. Any anything else on on this? Um, you know, less than ideal decision-making, as you called it, that you want to add? Because I think you've, you've got a couple in here. Any other watch-outs or recommendations here? Um, well, I have some recommendations. I want to give you an example of how this works. So oh, some, of the companies, some of the companies have engaged in this more recently, and so we're still waiting to, 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 to kind of follow up and track it. I actually think that the way in which we're thinking about this in some ways is wrong. We keep focusing on what's the short-term business impact. And it's very hard to entangle a statement from kind of the stock price, right? There's there's a the, the proximity between those two things is, is broad. But what I think is happening is that this is a fundamentally a strategic repositioning. And so I was, let me give you an example. I was talking with a group of CEOs. I said, how many of you have your companies target all political persuasions? Every single person raised their hand. I then said, how many of you want to reposition your firms such that they only target conservatives or liberals? Nobody raised their hand. And I said, but this is what you're doing. And now let me give you an example of how this works. 
I'm going to use, so I'm going to go back to 2018. We've, we've now got some nice data on Nike. Okay. This is an example. This is an anecdote that kind of um, shows uh, how this negative asymmetric effect works. So Nike at that time uh, partnered with Colin Kaepernick. The data show that social injustice is not divisive, that, that regardless of your political persuasion, uh, nobody believes that social injustice is a good thing. Okay, so that's not divisive. What is divisive, what is sociopolitical activism is kneeling for the flag. Liberals see that as very American, conservatives see that as very un-American, unpatriotic. That's the divisive mechanism. Said differently, if Nike had used Serena Williams as a spokesperson for social injustice, the reaction would have been different, okay? So let me tell you what the data is on Nike. Three years after, and this is through uh, BAV. BAV is a company out of Europe and they actually track brand image data and usage data for a number of different brands. Three years after Nike did that, uh, Democratic usage was up 3%. Uh, Republican usage was down 24%. Now here's the key. This is what's important because I think what we're not getting is what's happening to the brand image. One of the attributes that they that they measure is cares about uh, its customers. Democrats yeah. said uh, there's an increase three years later of 33 percent among Democrats, believing a significant increase that the brand cares about its customers. For Republicans, it's negative 54 percent. Wow. And on Twitter, if you look at the usage on Twitter, there's a way to measure this. Twitter usage among Democrats and Republicans before that Nike move was 52-48. It was kind of split. Nike consumers 52-48. After, it's 65-35. Now, my point to the, to the CEOs is that's fine if that was the strategic intent. We want to shift this brand to become a Democratic brand. That We want it to be a liberal brand. We want it to align with liberal ideology and we want to shift it. Now, you know, that's that's a strategic question. If that's what they wanted to do, I think they effectively have done that based on what we're seeing in the in the data and the perception of the brand. If that's not what you want to do, then then it becomes a problem. This is super interesting. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think this tracking over time and then uh you know, trying to figure causality out, especially when you have multiple things going on on the brand and, and product news and everything else. It's going to be, well, we're, we're going to keep tracking this research with with you as long as you agree to keep coming on the show. The because um, I, I think we're we're running we're running pretty much close to time here. So I would give you well, first, any other thoughts on how to manage this better? Uh, you know, and then and then then we'll get to our, our, our last question. So. OK, so, yeah. So I actually have a number of thoughts. So when I when I work with different executive audiences, first thing is you have to force perspective taking. If you personally are liberal and you can't articulate the conservative view or if you're conservative and can't articulate the liberal view, that becomes then a problem. So one of the things that you can do when you're discussing this is ensure that all sides are, are, are uh, equally represented. Understand what happens if you stand up on the conservative side, understand what happens if you stand up on the liberal side. And if your C-suite can't do it, then you have to bring in people from the outside. 
Um, ensure that your CMO understands that they are the consumer's champion. And I would also um, say the same thing about marketers. Unfortunately, in some cases, marketers may be advocating strongly in a way that's that's not helpful for the company. Here's another suggestion, which is make sure your DEI group is balanced with representatives of different political ideologies. I'm on a board with a woman who works at one of the large um, research firms. And she said today, almost all decisions are being driven by political ideology. If you have a DEI group that is uh, only on one side or the other, then you are at risk of the group that's supposed to be inclusive and represent everybody, not actually understanding everybody. So that's that's one thing you can do. Another thing is test positions with employees and consumers. So you know what I recommend is not under the crisis today. Pretend like you're faced with the issue of Disney, or or take any take the Bud Light issue. Yeah, the Budweiser thing is right there. Yeah. yeah, go and and see how your employees and your consumers would react, and actually challenge your marketing group to come up with a statement that would benefit where most people say, "Okay, I hear you, and I'm okay with that statement." What's happening is we're pushing people to the ends of the bell curve. Most people are in the middle, and I do some work with a political a, a guy who works on a lot of political campaigns. The way to handle this is to show compassion for both sides. You know, Disney, if you talked about, we've always been a big tent for all families. We stand with our LGBTQ families and what they're facing in this legislation. We also stand with parents who are worried about what their kids are learning and when they're learning it. We call on all of our elected leaders to bring both sides of this issue together to try to better understand how we can find a win-win. Why today must we live in a world with win-loses? Let's try to find a way to come together and find a win-win. Is that the best statement? I don't know, but go write 20 of them and test them. I, I think this is really worth thinking about because in the political environment, if you're if you're running a political campaign, you are highly advantaged to be on one of the edges, the far left or the far right. Uh, one of the things, if you're running a marketing campaign, you're not actually advantaged to be on either the far left or the far right. You're advantaged to be as as broad and understanding as possible because that's your fiduciary responsibility. So I think this is a good way to wrap this up. I will get to the final question here, which is any practical advice uh, in this issue we haven't talked about that you want to share with our listeners before we, we finish this session? Yeah, you know... So, like I said, I've run 12 of these these sessions and one of the it's taken me time to figure out how to have the conversation. So we move beyond the personal belief and we take off Kim Whitler. Kim Whitler believes in X, but for the firm, we should take a different stand. It's very hard to move from my own beliefs to what's in the best interest of the firm. One of the ways, there's two, there's two practical exercises. One is what I call steel manning, or it's not what I call it, it's, it's called steel manning. And, and the way it works is that you have to advocate the strongest possible position for, uh, for each of the different alternatives that you could consider. So what happens when I, typically when I'm working, the most vocal 
people tend to be the liberal uh, the liberal executives. And so I start by unpacking Disney and Coke and I say, give me all the reasons why we should Disney adopt the liberal perspective. And, it, and it, they come out like this, very easy. And then I said, we just spent eight minutes. I want eight minutes talking about all the reasons why we should adopt the conservative view. And it's usually, you know, there's a little bit of a gap before people start talking. And what I look for is the first person who gave me a reason on the left side who can also give me a reason on the right side. And I make a big deal about them because what we want to develop, what I want to develop in my students, what we want to develop in executives is the ability to see this issue from all sides. If you only see it from your own side, you have a blind spot. And if the C-suite only sees it from one side, the C-suite has a blind spot. And so this technique of steel manning helps people um, move beyond my own point of view to say, well, what would be arguments why we should adopt the conservative view? What would be an argument why we would say no comment, et cetera? So I, I think this is a great way to wrap it up. And I would I would say, if, if, correct me if I'm getting this wrong, one of the best things you can have as a, since we're talking to marketers here as a marketer or a CMO is consumer objectivity which is separate from your, you know, the whole bringing your whole self to work component that that when you are talking about the company and your customers, the objectivity to see them for what they are, not who you want them to be or how you want to see things. That is probably in today's world, one of the harder things to do, even though it was trained into you, like or trained in us uh, it, like years and years ago when we started at Proctor. So it, so I think that's a great way to end this. Thank you, Kim. Uh, we'll have you back on the show again. And thanks to everyone for listening to CMO Confidential. Look for more of our shows on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple, and YouTube, including what private equity really thinks about marketing, why the short shelf life of CMOs parts one and two, how to increase your chances of succeeding as a CMO, and why marketing and IT should be BFFs. Um, Hey, all you marketers, be safe out there. This is Mike Linton signing off for CMO Confidential. Today's episode of CMO Confidential is brought to you by CMOcoaches.com. Are you a current or aspiring chief marketing officer looking to take your career to the next level? You should work with a CMO coach. CMO coaches are former CMOs who are nationally certified coaches. So whether you want to improve your leadership skills, develop your team, or drive better business results, we have the experience and expertise to help you succeed. To learn more, visit us at cmocoaches.com. Great careers are forged out of great relationships. Your success, whatever your field, relies and thrives on the support and insights of others. I'm Andy Lapata, an author and speaker on the power of professional relationships. In the Connected Leadership podcast, I have the privilege of interviewing people from around the world to understand the relationships that have made a difference on their journey and how their insights can help you. From Nobel Prize winners to Olympians, from NASA astronauts to peace campaigners, my guests have shared some captivating moments from their lives and careers. Combined with experts from leading universities, cutting-edge authors and giants of business, the Connected Leadership podcast aims to inspire, educate and entertain.
Are you tired of the same old productivity hacks? Have you read the top 20 books on effectiveness and yet your workdays and email inbox still causing anxiety, burnout, and even depression? Ready to learn the latest in brain-based modalities, techniques, and technologies to optimize your success and well-being? Welcome to the Focus to Evolve podcast, where we'll illuminate your path to spacious productivity and balanced thriving. Each week, we dive into deeply insightful and immediately impactful methods to help you become highly effective while promoting health, profitability, and well-being. Say goodbye to the trance of busyness and hello to your highest potential. It's time to discover a new way of accelerating your mission, growth, and purpose. Join us on the Focus to Evolve podcast and get ready to live your most joyful, productive, and fulfilling life.